<laughs> a history of comedy. Coming up for homage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several objects. A history of comedy. Coming up for homage in the archive. Hello and welcome to A History of Comedy in Several Objects, a podcast brought to you by the University of Kent based on the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive. The Stand-Up Comedy Archive exists to collect all sorts of material relating to the history and art of stand-up comedy. I'm Ollie Double, you've just heard from my colleague Elspeth Miller, and we are very much the Delphont and Toco of comedy archiving. I've never heard of them. I know, they're really <laughs> obscure. So Delphont and Toco were a dance act, so they would have been uh, in variety in the sort of mid-20th century. Ver- uh, dance acts would normally, not always, but normally start a variety show. Uh, you know, the bill would, the first act, after the overture from the audience, the first act would normally be uh, a dance act, and it would be very, uh, I mean, that they had, you know, fast tap steps and things like that. Sometimes there'd be slight acrobatic elements and things. They'd be amazing, and people wouldn't be that bothered. And then they would often, well, normally, in fact, come back on to start the second half. So the idea is they're taking one for the team. They're taking the chill off the audience so that the audience is starting to react a little bit. And then normally what was called the second spot comic. So either an up-and-coming comedian would follow them in the first half or somebody who's perhaps not up-and-coming, perhaps down, <laughs> going down, uh, or, or stuck at a certain level, would, would, would uh, often follow the dance act. Okay. And But the fun thing about Delphine and Toko, for a start, Toko was, I believe, Japanese, so that's quite interesting. There was cultural diversity in variety, um, which is interesting. But also, Bernard Delphont, who was Delphont in Delphont and Toko, went on to become Lord Delphont, uh, one of the massive figures in British entertainment. Uh, so he was an agent and a producer and all kinds of things like that. He was the brother of Lou and Leslie Grade. It was this triumvirate of Grades uh, who, who were the sons of, of immigrants who'd come from, you know, sort of Jewish immigrants who'd come to uh, escape oppression in Eastern Europe. They came to the UK in the early 20th century and then they, uh, yeah, became these these massive sort of figures in show business. Interestingly, Lou Grade was also in a, in a, a, a male-female dance act. Uh, but I think, I think Delphont and Toko were more successful than Lou Grade's one. So were they, was each variety show only likely to have one dance act? That is a brilliant question, actually. Yes, is the answer. Although not necessarily, because sometimes you would get other kinds of dance act. Uh, certainly a dance act wouldn't ever get to the top of the bill. But you might have a novelty dance act like Wilson, Keppel and Betty, who would be higher on the bill. They did the sand dance. Have you I, ever seen I, that? I just remember the name. I feel like we've talked about them before, maybe. Yeah, Wilson, Keppel and Betty were a sort of legendary mid-20th century showbiz act. Uh, two guys who looked skinny with big improbable black moustaches and Betty who was an interchangeable performer yeah. uh, in fact even a, a mother and daughter did the role of Betty Betty was often a very good dancer though and they did this sort of wacky sort of cod Egypt ancient Egyptian um, dance on sand they would pour sand on the stage okay. and you'd hear this shuffling noise as they shuffled across and talking about um, cultural diversity it wasn't all good cultural diversity because they were obviously misrepresenting Egypt- Egyptian culture albeit um, 
ancient Egyptian culture, not not contemporary. Uh, but I mean, it was very much a cartoony kind of, you know, um, not exactly mocking, but you know, sort of wacky uh, okay. take on that. So, would Delphont and Toko be likely to feature in our collection of of today, or are they a bit too a bit late? Uh, that is a, a really amazing question because do you want to just say what the collection is? Yes, it's the David Drummond Comedy Collection. That's what we've called it. And we talked about it in the last episode. We did. So it's like a preview to this yeah. full episode. Like a sneak preview. Um, yeah, so it's a it's an interesting collection in that normally when you have an archive collection come in, there's kind of a clear sort of ownership, sort of provenance chain to it. Um, and this has has that clear chain in a sense. It was acquired from David Drummond, um, your school bought it as part of your kind of your library budget, I think. Yeah, so this is the School um, of Arts at the University of Kent. That's right, from David. But he acquired it from kind of two different sources at least. And it's so it's all a bit of a um, kind of a, a muddle, really, in terms of where the materials come from. Um, but it's a collection of scripts and hand sheets and sheet music and jokes. Backs of envelopes. Yeah, backs of envelopes, yeah. It, Scribbles. I mean, when you say uh, there was no particular order to it, you're slightly glossing <laughs> over something, aren't you? Yeah, well, it was in bin bags, wasn't it? That's it was true. in black <laughs> bin bags. <laughs> Just the one or was there two? I, I, think, there were, I think there was more than one, actually. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, I mean, I first encountered it. We went to visit uh, David's house um, to look at some other material which the university has acquired uh, relating to the history of pantomime. And he said, oh, there's this as well, if you're interested. And I, I just looked through it. And I've been researching comedy for a long time. I mean, I started doing my PhD on British stand-up in 1987, which shows just what an old git I am. <laughs> but um, the thing is, when you've been studying something for a long time, it's like you can see new items that you've never seen before and start to interpret them. Because you just know, you have this background knowledge. And I looked at it and I went, this is fascinating so um, there are a few things that I wanted to pick out. Now, last week, last episode, rather, we mentioned Gaston Andre, and you have in front of you, would you want to read out what it says at the top of the, of the page there? Yeah, so it's a headed piece of paper with Gaston and Andre Productions, and it's kind of got their logo, which yeah. is quite cool, actually. It's amazingly cool. Yeah, it's like a, an orange circle with black kind of silhouetted figures doing like a... A cut, what, what? Adagio, act. Adagio, yeah, yeah. So a balancing, yeah. a graceful dance, like uh, that's the other th- the other type of other dance act you might yeah. have found on a bill, by okay. the way, uh, an Adagio act, and um, they're doing a balance. And I have to say, it almost has the feeling of those weird, sort of cod sexy James Bond mm. intro themes because it's sort of black silhouetted figures looking like they may possibly be in a state of undress. <laughs> yes, yeah, it does. And that was kind of their their stage thing. They they okay. they would be quite scantily. Both the the man and the woman would be quite scantily clad. So, okay. and um, it's got their their address at the top of the page mm, and, and their telephone, telephone number. Primrose four three eight zero. Yeah, Primrose <laughs> four three eight zero, which is it speaks of a very different type. Mm. Primrose is presumably the name of the telephone exchange. Mm-hmm. So their number is four three eight zero, but you'd have to ask for Primrose Exchange. Mm. And on there, what do we see? Um, it's a it's a sheet full of sort of typewritten. Um, to me, it's like a set list that we'd see from a comedian. In that it's 
that's what kind of my reference is in a way. It sort of looks like little kind of reminders for what the joke will be. So the first one is newspaper headlines. So and then I, th- I think just to say, I think newspaper headlines is the title of oh. what these <laughs> items are. Because okay. I think they're all sort of joke headlines, mm. like you'd have used to get in, in the uh, two Ronnies. Okay. It's the, the little dashes um, confused me. I yeah, well, because so it says newspaper headlines dash, and it looks mm. like newspaper headlines is an item, yeah. but in fact, I think it's the title of the page mm, because okay. I think these are all newspaper headlines. And do you want me to read some of? Them yes. Out? Okay. So, government denies making bloomers. Women to work in three shifts. Tessie O'Shea bails out over Atlantic. Do you want me to continue? <laughs> yeah, because I think I think you'll find that okay. government denies making bloomers, women to work in three shifts. That's the joke. It's that they're two line jokes. Oh right. Because the joke there is making bloomers means making a mistake, but bloomers can also mean underwear. Mm, yeah. Shifts can also be mm. underwear. So women working in three shifts. Okay. So the next joke then is Tessie O'Shea bails out over Atlantic, and. Big drop in fat stock prices. Right, so the the joke there is Tessie O'Shea uh, was a kind of comedic singer, uh, sometimes known as two-ton Tessie O'Shea. Mm. She was sort of slightly rotund and made, made a feature of that. Um, so if she bails out over the Atlantic, then there's a drop in fat stock prices because she's fat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's horribly sexist if you think about it. Although, to be fair, there were also large uh, male performers you know who inspired jokes about their size um teddy brown the xylophonist would would spring to mind the next one well i tell you what i want to skip down to this Mm -hmm. so this is interesting because could you want to describe what's happened just here so there's another kind of two-line joke but it's been crossed out in blue crayon with a stamp next to it deleted by the lord chamberlain in fact i mean it is it is you're absolutely correct to say it's, it's uh, crossed out with a blue crayon, a blue pencil crayon specifically. And the, f- the phrase blue pencil was quite widely known because any script uh, that was going to be produced and performed in a theatre had to be pre-approved by the Lord Chamberlain's office up to 1968 when, it was that, when that function was abolished. And uh, there are exceptions to that, which perhaps we'll talk about in a bit. Um, but but what would happen is it'd go in front and then you, you'd have a licence to perform it, mm. um, which we'll, we'll, we'll build on in a minute. But um, but you, you wouldn't be allowed to perform the bits that were deleted in blue pencil. And it was always a blue pencil. And there was one comedian, Jack Warner, who made a feature of that in his act. So when he instead of using the expletive, he'd say blue pencil. <laughs> so I went out this morning, and the weather was blue pencil awful. <laughs> I, I don't know if he actually said that, but that's the kind of way you would use it. Yeah. And uh, if we let's see what was rude enough for Lord Chamberlain to um, to exclude it from a script. Baby chimp born in Egyptian zoo. Government blames Farouk. Right now. I'm quite glad they blue penciled. I think it's quite rude. <laughs> it is rude, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, baby chip born in Egyptian Zoo, government blames Farouk. So th- I, th- I think the, the joke there is that the second thing notionally is disconnected from the first, but it sounds... Well, no, it's not. It's, it's connected because it's blaming him. But mm. the point is, he, he's blaming Farouk in a general sense, but the implication is that he's responsible for the birth of a baby chimp and therefore some kind of horrible bestial act has taken place, which seems very, very racy mm. for... Racist? Well, yeah, yeah, potentially racist as well. Although, interestingly, we have another version of that on another page from 
the uh, Drummond script collection. This also was a single page rather than part of a longer script. It's obviously been part of a longer script because there's a number 14 at the top, but has become sort of separated from the other elements. And once again, it's deleted uh, by the Lord Chamberlain, although in this version only the punchline is the uh, setup is allowed. But why you do want to say a setup without a, a punch, who knows? So it, this one is from a double act called Dave and Joe O'Gorman. Dave and Joe O'Gorman were quite a well-known uh, double act. And, yeah, the, you can find footage of them on BritishPathé.com, I think it is. British Pathé is the website anyway. So if you're interested, you can find that. But anyway, the joke goes, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you be Dave and I'll be Joe? Okay. Baby chimpanzee born in London Zoo. Atlee blames Churchill. Hmm. And then, and that's crossed out, uh, but afterwards in pen it says, or Tommy Trinder blames Max Miller, or local gag. So the point is, you can adjust it to any situation. It doesn't matter who's being blamed and who's doing the blaming. The point is, sex with a chimpanzee, (laughs) whatever it is. So the Lord Chamberlain deleted that, kind of outly blames Churchill bit. Would they have allowed the second bit then, Tommy Trinder blames Max Miller, or... Can we assume that they performed it in with Tommy Trinder? I, 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 I think the Lord Chamberlain's office has been very, very slack here. I think that by not crossing out the setup and not crossing out the handwritten uh, uh, sort of edition, I think that it opens it up to potentially, legally, they could say that Tommy Trinder blames Max Miller, which is less disrespectful. I mean, Attlee blames Churchill. Uh, I mean, you're talking about Clem Attlee and Winston Churchill. I mean, these are giant figures uh, of British political history. I mean, I don't know when this script dates from. I don't know when Attlee would be blaming Churchill, whether it's just before the 1945 election when Attlee was uh, elected and obviously the magnificent post-war Labour government that brought us the NHS. Um, I don't know. Um, But uh, anyway, that's, that's more disrespectful. I mean, Tommy Trudger and Max Miller... That's not they're not politicians, they're just big comedians. Mm. So but I love the all local gag. Make yeah. up your own punchline. <laughs> but I mean we we I mean we could actually I probably not because it could get us into trouble. Yeah. We could make a perversion because you just have to say somebody blames somebody else. Mm. Uh but I think I suppose the other point is there isn't a, a, an act. We said that, but actually, sorry, I looked further down. Oh, and on. I'm assuming actually it's the same performers. Oh, you're right. Because it's got Dave and Joe. Mm. So Gaston and Andre were the um, like producers, in a sense, like putting on the act, Joe, Joe and Dave, and Dave and Joe. Yes, so that's right. Mm. So um, so that's twice they've had their joke. It is. You'd think they'd <laughs> Slap learn. Slap down, yeah. they learn from the first time. Yeah, so Gaston and Andre uh, were an Adagio act, but also theatrical producers. Mm. So they would put on uh, reviews that would then go round in variety. Um Basically, how it would work is, I mean, a variety review could be take different forms. Sometimes it would be like almost like a stage musical. Um, so it would be quite a fixed set of items that would sort of build with almost a storyline. But sometimes it would be little more than a collection of variety acts that would tour together and then perhaps a production number at the end. Okay. So in other words, a number where everybody comes on and joins in. Um, uh, because normally in variety, that you the acts that were on the bill that week in, let's say, the Sheffield Empire, 
would probably only ever appear in that particular collection with that particular order for that week and then they go their separate ways the different individual each one is effectively a separate production but when it starts to tour as a review then it it's it's counts as one show whether it's the kind of fancy kind of musical theater style one or whether it's the one where it's just a bunch of acts with a production number at the end but the point is that changes things in the law so we have here an entire or pretty much an entire script of a Gaston and Andre um review and it says, memorandum on the front, any proposed alteration or addition to this play or alteration of title must be submitted for the Lord Chamberlain's approval. Underlined, failure to observe this regulation may endanger the continuation of the performance of the play. And then it continues, without underlining, this licence should be forwarded to the manager of the company performing the play in order that it may be produced to the managers of theatres at which the play is toured. And there's a fancy cursive script certificate uh, do you want to give that a go, reading mm. it out? The Lord Chamberlain of the King's Household, for the time being, do by virtue of my office and in pursuance of powers given to me by the Act of Parliament for regulating theatres, uh, 6 and 7 Victoria, cap 68, section 12, <laughs> um, allow the performance of a, of a new stage play of which a copy has been submitted to be by you, being a... Review. We review in two acts entitled Artists and Models. Yep. With the exception of all words and passages which are specified in the endorsement of this license and without any further variations whatsoever given under my hand. This 26th day of February 1944. And then it's signed at the bottom mm. and it's sent to the manager of the Embassy Theatre Peterborough. And if we look, the script itself is is very odd. Uh, it's some of it's on printed on sort of um, headed notepaper, effectively. Some of it's laid out quite um, formally, like a formal script. There are, there are some handwritten additions there. The paper is very flimsy, and then there are, there are other bits where the format is completely different. So here, this is not typed, but it's in purple. Uh, which my guess is it's reproduced by some sort of primitive reproduction system, and it and it goes on, and there are, there are pa- each page is is stamped uh, that it's licensed by the Lord Chamberlain's office, and occasionally there are deletions, like a little poem entitled "It's not so long as it looks, but it's fatter than it feels." <laughs> <laughs> my God, that's incredibly rude! Don't you think? Oh, and he recites it. They haven't crossed out recites, but I presume they couldn't recite it. Well, um, okay, so well, it, what it says, the, the, the poem that, that goes on to recite, I went to the pictures one day with my little sweetheart, Jeannie. I saw some white wool and I started to pull, and that's how she lost her shimmy. So, Oh, is that the poem? Yeah. So, I thought, all right. Okay. But, there, you know, there's a thing, isn't there, where people do that thing where they... Um, they announce the title of a song, and the title of the song is just a joke in its own right, which doesn't mm. bear that much relation to the, the song as it comes out. And I know that Max Miller used to do that, for example. Mm. Uh, so it's it's like, my guess is that you can say the poem because it's comparatively mild, but you can't say mm. uh, something about it being long and fatter than it feels, which I have to say I do think <laughs> is a bit saucy. So this was 1944? Yeah. It's 1944, indeed. So this would have been, you know, late wartime era. Um, 
and we don't know that much about it. I mean, there's not occasionally there's an item with with um, you know an attribution as to the writer. So, comedy item by Clifford and Wrigley, East is East, juggling act by Eva May Wong. Okay, that's that's an act, um, and then arranged by Claude Bampton, music by uh, words and music Joseph Shellard. So, you know, that's a song there. Mm. Uh, Venus keeps a date, date with a dream. Um, and uh, it, and so it goes on. Um, it, it's interesting, actually. I mean, I mean, I suppose one of the things is, it, 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 they say it's a stage play, but it's not like anything we would recognise as a play, mm. really. That's a technical, legal distinction because the law surrounding stage plays was different from that surrounding variety acts. Um, I also note that it's called Artists and Models or Artists and Models, and I think even that might have been seen as being slightly saucy because, you know, um, obviously a model for an artist could be modelling in any way, but obviously one form of uh, modelling is uh, life drawing, naked mm. modelling, and my guess is they sort of hoped people would think that because there was a, certainly a bit later than this, there was a sort of tradition of saucily named uh, reviews with titles like Strip, Strip, Hooray and things like that. So how did the title that they gave the review relate in any way to the actual kind of the songs and the performance or was it just a a title to entice people to come and see? I think it depended. So, um, for example, some of the Crazy Gang reviews at the Palladium and elsewhere had... Um, had titles that sort of reflected some of the content. But I think in a lot of cases, there wasn't a lot of, of connection. Mm. But there's another interesting thing there, because Max Miller appeared in Review on occasion, particularly a review called Applesauce. Um, and Max Miller was known to be uh, probably the rudest comedian working in variety, the cheeky chappy, and he was an absolute master of innuendo. And we know that's true because there were recordings of him made in the theatre from 1938 right through to the early 60s, shortly before he died. And, uh, well, the, 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 the last couple of recordings weren't in the theatre because there weren't many variety th theatres left by that point. There was one made in a, in a kind of recording studio in London and one made in a pub near Brighton. But most of the recordings were either in a theatre or in a theatre-like environment. And we know what kind of things he said, and some of it even today sounds quite rude. But the thing is, one of the reasons he got away with it was because in a, a variety show... A strict variety show didn't have to go before the Lord Chamberlain because it didn't count as a stage play. Okay. However, an act that within it had more than one speaker might well have to go, you know, and, and be approved because that in itself was a stage play. But Max Miller, being a solo act, didn't count as a stage play. So wouldn't unless he was in a review like Applesauce, wouldn't have been subject to that kind of censorship. However, it didn't mean to say that there was no censorship at all because there were also things called local watch committees and uh, they were really responsible for things like health and safety in the, in the um, auditorium. But in fact, they, they made it their business in some places. Birmingham was notorious to, to actually monitor content and I believe sometimes they took cases to court and theatre managers could find themselves fined. So what, so, it, it, so what happened was that theatre managers became sort of de facto censors, you know, okay. trying to tell acts what they couldn't say, 
Um, and one of the things that Max Miller did was he built that into his act. So he would pretend the manager's on the side of the stage waiting to stop him at any moment. And he would lean forward towards the audience and go, shh, otherwise he'll hear. <laughs> and uh, I think what's beautiful about that is it creates a, a fantastic sort of um, uh, conspiracy between performer and audience. And it's interesting because censorship, uh, what censorship creates is creative solutions to censorship, which actually creates, in a way, a stronger sense of collusion between performer and audience uh, than you would get if you could just say the thing openly. Yeah, because one of the things we talk about with Sound Up is that even though a performer will have a, a set list, every show is going to be different because of the audience is different and you do have a lot of that kind of shared sort of... You might have hecklers, for example, so your your stand-up comedian is, is going to respond. In that time, was it more likely then that they would stick to the same kind of script as such every night in that you wouldn't have like a slightly different show every time because you had to stick to a script that had been approved or you had the censorship of kind of the theatre managers sort of censoring you? That is a brilliant question. And and the answer is, the technical legal answer, I believe, is you were only licensed to say the word in the words in the script. And what that means is that, no, you, you weren't technically allowed to improvise. And I know that when Keith Johnston started in the 1960s with Theatre Machine, the, you know, a pioneer of theatre improvisation, it was very, very difficult legally to, to improvise because, you know, you, you, I mean, you, you'd have to be in a kind of private theatre club or something because otherwise, you, how can you pre-approve a script for something that's improvised? Uh, with something like Max Miller, in, in normal terms because he he didn't appear in review that often he was mainly just a solo variety act it allowed him the freedom and we know that he did respond in the moment because we can hear him responding to people in the audience in the in um the in the theater recordings i mean there's there's a recording in the second world war it wouldn't have been in a variety theater as such but he was entertaining the troops and there's a bit where somebody is making a fuss and he goes oh he's a lad isn't he you know he makes fun (laughs) of this guy for kicking off so that would have been legal. But it's interesting you ask that question because Tommy Trinder, who obviously was mentioned earlier in, in the joke we were reading out, he was in review quite a lot, as well as just being a variety act. And he was famous for improvising. And he, in fact, I believe in the Palladium, I think it was, they build a walkway over the orchestra pit so he could go further towards the audience and sort of interact with them more. And... I'm not aware of that creating any legal difficulty. So whether it was just a question of the Lord Chamberlain's office turning a blind eye to that or whether they had some sort of special arrangement, which I can't imagine they would, I I, I really don't know. That's a brilliant question. The the other thing is, but you you also say that um, would they have to stick to the script more? And yes, the answer, I mean... We noticed starting to read these scripts out that um, they are, um, as opposed to the set lists we've looked at in in, in the uh, British Standard Comedy Archive, um, you you can make sense of these on the page. So, for example, this is from a um, a thing called Laughter Maker. Uh, And in itself, this is an interesting thing because this isn't a script for a particular review. So... Say those songs that I mentioned in the Gaston and Andre review, which incidentally that 
that script I think is our item for today because mm-hmm. normally yeah. we pick one item yeah. from the stand-up archive to be the feature of the episode and in this case it's not from the stand-up archive it's from the David Drummond comedy collection is that right yeah I suppose yes that's right I suppose it's from our wider theatre popular and comic performance collections yeah because we have yeah. other things that relate yeah. to to comic performance um but anyway, the, the, the songs in there, presumably they either commissioned those songs from the songwriters or they um, sort of requested their use for this review. This is different. This is a thing called Laughter Maker. And it's just a sheet or, or, or a bunch of sheets of jokes stapled together. And on the front, you could see the jokes. And I thought we could maybe read out a couple of these. Um, do you want to read the first one? I once knew a guy who crossed... Yeah. Sorry, it's written wrong, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll start again. I once knew a guy who crossed a rooster with another rooster and got a very cross rooster. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, excellent joke there. (laughs) The next one, my doctor doesn't ask you to say, oh, he just shows you a picture of Jane Mansfield. So this is a kind of sexy, sexy joke. The idea is Jane Mansfield is a sex symbol, so you see her and you go, oh. I mean, only works on straight men or lesbians, presumably. It just assumes that in the joke, which is, you know... Anyway, um, do you want to read the next one, Dave? Yeah. I don't think the Russians will ever invade our country. They couldn't find a place to park, as we were talking about this morning. (laughs) Yeah, biting satire, that. Although very, very close to my heart, as I found it hard to park in the university car park this morning. Um, Oh, this is... um, uh, this is this is another one that indicates the attitudes of the time. When a woman driver puts her hand out of the window to go around a corner, there is one thing we can all be sure of. The window is open. So the joke there, such as it is, is that you think it's going to say that she's going to turn left or turn right, but the joke is that the window is open in order to, for her to hold her hand out. This is obviously in the days when cars Ooh, didn't necessarily have indicators. That you, yeah. People did put their hand out the window. I don't think we would do that now. So that's one thing that roots this to a particular era. But the other thing is the stereotype of the woman driver. It's obviously a sexist stereotype. And the woman driver, I mean, did you hear jokes about that when you were young? Oh, yeah, even now. Like, you still get kind of... Well, probably not jokes, but comments, but yeah. It's really depressing, that, because I, yeah. I definitely heard them when I was uh, young, when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I'm, I'm old, you know. You'd expect me to have heard yeah. ancient attitudes. What's weird to me about that is, look at your insurance premium and tell me whether <laughs> women are safer drivers. The fact <laughs> is, statistically, they are. Yeah. And yet the joke apparently persists. Yeah. Which shows that jokes aren't really based on observation, but are based on attitudes. Is this probably the forties again? Do we think? Honestly, it's hard to tell <laughs> uh, I, I would guess. Actually, I was going to say mm. honestly, I, I don't know, but I think a it bit later. Be more, yeah. Because at the top cool. it says television is here to go. It will never replace the old-fashioned keyhole. My guess is it's mid-fifties. I presume yes, with the Russians invading yeah. joke as well. Yeah, Cold War. Mm. So, so I strongly guess mid-50s, because 53 was when television ownership really took off because of the coronation being televised. So television existed before that. It was even around pre-war, um, and then it stopped during the war and came back after the war. But the fact is it was tiny uh, before the um, the coronation. The, the, the interesting thing about this, Laughter Maker, is this is not something that's written for a particular show or a particular performer. It's a bunch of jokes you can buy, and if you buy them, you have the right to use them. This is called part rights. Rather than buying the exclusive rights, you buy the right 
to share the material with with other people. And was that um, kind of like one off, or could you just use it forever if you wanted? Like, what's, um, that's a really good question because sometimes when you bought material, you bought rights with specific conditions. So, in other words, the rights you have the right to use this material for a year in theatres and broadcasting in the UK. And sometimes you'd get cases where um, the same material would be licensed for one act in America and a different act in the UK. So there was a double act called Jewel and Warris, I believe, who used uh, a set of material that was originally written for an American double act, uh, but they were licensed to use it in the UK. Mm. Um, I think with part rights, generally, you just buy the material and it's yours to use. So that arrangement, that part right arrangement, was that common in America as well then, like through the vaudeville sort of circuits? Honestly, I don't know, because uh, I, I know much more about the UK situation. But given that, that, that uh, you know, an act had the rights to that in the US, my feeling is that it was probably going to be quite similar. Mm. Uh, probably not exactly the same, but I, my guess is quite similar. I mean, this is, this is quite interesting. This is a list of uh, part rights from a writer called John Slattery from dated autumn... 1949. Um, Shall we read a couple of these headings out? 25 original gags and stories. Uh, Songs, is that? I think it says some to suit all. Some to suit all. And then it's got the price, which is two shillings and sixpence. And then underneath it says, said bright and blue, seven to eight minutes saucy patter, 21 shillings. And that's more indicative, actually. Uh, Two shillings and sixpence is dirt cheap. Mm. Um, but actually most of them are sets of more specific things. So, for example, I think it says duet for one, 10 to 12 minutes script for vent, ventriloquist, obviously, and again, that's 21 shillings. So this is a list, it's a price list uh, produced by somebody called John Slattery of his part rights materials. So if you want to start off as a, a double act for drunk comic and partner, for example, which is both clean and strong, allegedly, and you've got 21 shillings to spare, um, then you can buy that from John Slattery, and this is advertising his wares. I mean, one of the things that's quite interesting to me about the uh, drum and script collection, drum and comedy collection, is that um, there are some well-known... Some of it you can't uh, attribute to any particular act, um, and some of it you can. So we talked about Dave and Joe O'Gorman. Um, and actually, one of the ones we have a few pages of is um, is from a legendary American double act called Olsen and Johnson. Have you ever heard of them? I don't think so. No re- particular reason why you should. But if we went back, say, 50, 60 years, you definitely would have done. Uh, they were a very well-known American double act, and they're probably best known, even at the time they're probably best known for and best remembered for, a film called Hell's a Poppin, which was based on a live review. And I believe that Hell's a Poppin, it definitely came to the UK, but I believe it came some years after the film came out, so it was adapted and turned into a film. And I really recommend it. Okay. I saw it as a child and found it absolutely mad. And I... I, I I hadn't seen it since I was a child, but I bought the DVD uh, a few months ago when I found the Olsen and Johnson script in, in uh, our collection here. 
And it is as mad as I remembered it. It's, it breaks the frame all the time. So they sing uh, this production number, Hell's a Poppin, with people dressed as comedy devils and things. And then they just show the scenery going back and everybody okay. going, oh, that's a wrap. And then it, it changes all the time. It breaks out of things. Mm. It's really, really funny. And, you know, uh, I imagine it must have been an influence on sort of the goons and Python and things like that okay. because it's so... Um, well, you probably to, to use a lazy term. You probably say surreal, but it's it's certainly um, very different from what you'd imagine of the comedy of the sort of thirties and forties would be like. Well, check it out. Check it out, <laughs> Austin and Johnson. Um, okay. Well, I thought we could perhaps finish the episode by ta- by looking at something from the British Stand Up Comedy Archive. So, what have, what have you got here? Uh, this is um, a script. Well, sort of script notes um, from the Andy De La Tour collection. And uh, it says, now I don't know how, I, I, I'm, I've looked at Andy's material a lot, so I can read his writing. It's handwritten for a start. Mm. And sorry, kind of three different sections, aren't there? There's the, yeah. the, the top fashion change section, yep. uh, Olympics slash chariots of fire yep. section, and student slash sex section. Okie doke. And uh, unusually, actually, for material from the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, you could sort of get a sense of the of what the jokes would have been like on stage from the way they're written. It's not just a, a cryptic word or phrase; mm. it's 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 a whole idea written out. So, if Which we look, is quite unusual, isn't it? It is quite for, unusual. And we, I think, we talked about this in one of the not this script, but this sort of style in one of our early we did episodes. The, but it, it's the yeah. episode called Robin Ince's Postcards. Yes. Because Robin Ince's postcards are a whole Edinburgh show and it, you can't make any sort of sense mm. of the, what the, the show was like from, from these sort of cryptic um, um, phrases written on the postcards. And in fact, he, put, he gave this, the, the postcards in an envelope and he wrote on it by way of explanation, uh, I think this was my show, Robin Ince is as dumb as you, can't remember what most of it meant. <laughs> so even he, the comedian, couldn't remember what it meant. But here you can get much more of a sense of the material as you can incidentally in all the material in the Drummond comedy collection and the reason for that is obviously if you're writing material for somebody else it has to make sense on the page Mm. it can't just be cryptic notes because how would they interpret those whereas if you're writing for yourself it all you need is enough for you to remember what, what it is you want to say but Andy worked differently he used to write he was an early alternative comedian uh, he was one of the pioneers, a major figure in the early days of alternative comedy. He was a member of Alternative Cabaret, a group started by Tony Allen. And this one particularly leaps out at me, this fashion one, because I think this is an early version, and we've got different uh, iterations of this. We've got different. We've got at least two different versions of this beyond this one, mm-hmm. uh, where it's where the where the, the script is developed. I'm going to try and read it out, and you've got all the poverty fashion clothes. You get Wally's walking down the King's Road. Uh, something put who or something put rats on a on a lead. Girls with dyed lice. Um, I can't read all of that. Little PVC Jarrow Crusade capes, hobnail boots, and of course Mary Quant uh, leg iron maybe. And underneath the cape. Uh, I can't read it. A uh, drab? Yeah, drab blouse. If they can get the 
something sucked dry by a starving child. The breasts sucked dry by a starving child. The groovy that they are. Um, but the real trendies, the ones in North London, and then it goes dot, dot, dot. He's going to continue that. Um, so maybe that's a later edition. Maybe that's uh, like there's an earlier version and that dot, dot, dot indicates that then it goes into the bit he's written yeah. before. Or maybe he's going to go back and work on it further later on. But the reason that particular routine sticks out to me is because you can hear that routine if you've got vinyl uh. at your disposal and you can play it. There's a, there was an LP release. There's no date on the sleeve, and we have a copy in the stand-up archive called Let the Children Play. And it was a, it was a, a sort of, not exactly a charity, it was a campaigning um, LP, so the money went to anti-nuclear groups. The first LP, it's a double LP, and the first LP is music, and the second disc is comedy. And a lot of the pioneers of alternative comedy are on there, including Andy, and you can hear that routine. And it's one of the best tracks on there, in my estimation. I bought it when I was about 20, and I listened to it. And some of it I just didn't get. And some of it I went, that's really interesting, that's really funny. And I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily say it's an absolute favourite because there's a brilliant one by a guy called Mark Me Words, later known as Mark Hurst, which is his actual name. But the Andy one is really, really good. Uh, I don't know which is my favourite. But, yeah, so if you want to hear the final version... Seek out a copy of Let the Children Play. I think you can get secondhand copies uh, online and you know, make sure you've got a turntable to hand and you can listen to how that one came out. But I think, for me, I think what's interesting about, uh, about the way that scripts change, that, that this script from Andy's collection is different in kind from these ones in the drum and script collection, is it's indicative of a change in the, in the way that British comedy is made and, and the ideas and the ethos behind it. Because in Variety, it was very, very rare for comedians to generate their own material. They'd either just collect it and acquire it, or they would buy it. Uh, with alternative comedy, it was almost like when the Beatles broke through, suddenly there was an expectation that people were going to write their own material you know, much more. It was, it's not exclusively true that they all wrote every, every bit that they said on stage. Sometimes there was you know, borrowing or, you know, sometimes they would collaborate with other people. But generally speaking, it was something that was self-expression. It was something they wrote themselves. Whereas now, I mean, there still is that expectation, but there are quite well-known comedians who have a team of writers as well, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, there are. I mean, this is a sort of, it's comedy's secret, really. Uh, you can buy a DVD from a, from a well-known comedian that says, written and performed by X... And actually, in, as a matter of fact, it isn't written by X, or at least not exclusively so. I think, to be fair, I think uh, th there is some attribution. So in, in um, some TV shows, they'll have these kind of phrases like script associate or program associate or something. And that's basically people who are writing. And they, why they don't just say script writers? I don't know, because it seems to me there's no shame if you're doing mm. a weekly TV show that, you, that people have to help yeah, you write it. Um, but often uh, it's not as simple as, for example, somebody buying part work, part right material. You know, if you if you buy part right material, you don't really have a lot of creative agency in there in terms of the material itself. I mean, yes, you have to perform it, and how you perform it is up to you. Uh, but if you if 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 you're working with a team to make a TV, a TV show, often you're the creative leader of that team, so you're setting the the tone 
It's just that you're working with people who are supplying individual bits of it. And similarly, I interviewed a guy who, who's been part of one of those teams and also is a good friend of mine as well. Um, and also uh, is, is the, the, ma the main writer for a very well-known comedian. Now, I'm not going to name either of them because he'd rather I didn't. Um, and how it works is this person and him sit down together. The person has the ideas of the kinds of things they want to talk about. I'm going to say they because I don't want to reveal who it is. And they work on the ideas together. But So the ideas are initiated by the comedian, but they have somebody to work with and they collaborate mm. on putting it together. Now, I don't see any shame in that. And to me, it's, it's almost as much self-expression as if you wrote it entirely by yourself. But, but the current thing is you're supposed to sort of hide that for some reason, which I don't think is good. Is that pressure from within the industry? Or is that more of like audience expectations? I think that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I, th I think maybe the assumption is that people wouldn't respect the comedian as much if they knew that they had a write writing partner. I think people would, because as you say, it's as much about the delivery as, yeah. I mean, to me, it's like saying, uh, oh, well, if I acknowledged, I, I'm a magician, but if I acknowledged that these things are tricks and not actual magical <laughs> powers, people wouldn't respect me. I think people know it's magic, <laughs> right? Yeah. But so would the, so people like Max Miller and Tommy Trinder, would they have had, would they have, part rights or would they have had more of that sort of relationship like um co-creation sort of or would they have written everything themselves okay mm. so um i don't know uh, but i know that that miller did write uh sorry did um buy material because uh in his autobiography bob monkhouse recalls as quite a young man selling miller a couple of gags at the, at the theatre, you know, at the stage door, you know, just, just being at waiting for him and afterwards and say, look, I've got these. And uh, um, uh, my guess is probably a combination of just, just hearing jokes and remembering them and perhaps keeping a notebook with, with, with them written down, you know, just jokes that are swapped in everyday life. And probably, possibly they bought part rights, I don't know. And my guess is once you got to a certain level, you wouldn't want, to, wouldn't want to do that because obviously the risk is somebody else earlier on the bill has already told that joke because um, Miller would have been on at the end or at the end of the first half, but, I mean, likely at the end, because he'd have been the star of the show. So, you know, somebody could have been less famous than him, but they, they're they on first, they get first shout, effectively. Um, so my guess is once you got to a certain level, you probably pay for material. Um, and when Trinder was in a review, if you are in a review, you might have material bought for you by the person who's producing the review. Okay. So, yeah. But, I mean, I think as well, the fact that Andy's... Um, material is written some of the material in the drum and script collection is handwritten but it tends to be handwritten in a hand that you can read for example in block capitals this is written in his handwriting because only he has to read it and it, it's it's it feels very personal this feels like I mean I should just say the fashion thing is a satirical thing to do with you know the fact that on, in the early years of the Thatcher government uh, there was a lot more poverty there was a lot more unemployment you know unemployment went it more than tripled it went over a million then over two million then over three million and there were people who were desperately poor uh, you know in, traditional industries were destroyed and so this is really talking about how the fact that there is poverty but also how trendies are sort of playing on that by doing kind of like a Jarrow March revival kind of thing. So it's it's a proper bit of satire there. But it also feels like very much an expression of Andy's politics. And it feels personal because it's written in his own hand. Mm. 
and although you can sort of make sense of the jokes by reading it, you have to be able to read his writing. And also you can see the act of creation on the page because there are bits that are crossed out. There are bits where there are words added in. Um, and, and you, you, you know, uh, presumably in the course of learning it, it changed and developed. It wouldn't be like a Lord Chamberlain approved script where you had mm. to stick word for word. You know, because certainly none of the versions of this routine that we have in the collection, word for word, match the recorded version, which is interesting. Yeah. But anyway, uh, this um, this podcast isn't just, is it, about no. uh, us <laughs> talking to you. It's also about you getting involved. <laughs> There are various ways that you can get involved in this podcast, but first of all, you'll need to know how to contact us. You can email us via standup at kent.ac.uk. That's standup, all one word, no hyphen, at kent.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at histcompod. And we're also on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page. Uh, the first way you can get involved is go to the catalogue, which you can find online, find a listing for a comedy object and nominate it. We'll talk about all nominated objects in future episodes. That's the vanilla version. And if you do that, we're going to send you a badge of the, um, of the podcast and also a badge of the stand-up comedy archive. So do remember to include a postal address. The chocolate chip version of getting involved is to send us an email, arrange to come into the stand-up comedy archive, look at some material for yourself, record a short piece about one of the objects that you've seen. If you do this, you'll be given an amazing stand-up comedy archive limited edition T-shirt in your appropriate clothing size. And uh, a podcast badge as well. Um, And we'll use those recordings in in future episodes. And the stupidest way of getting involved is to record your own version of our theme tune. And if we like it, we'll use it in a future episode. One last thing. Please leave a review of this podcast on iTunes. It's really important to us. And if you do that, send us a screen grab of your review uh, on an email or something and we'll and leave a postal address and we'll send you a badge. A History of Comedy and Several Objects is devised and presented by Dr. Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hoss.